Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to come out and run. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. What's the problem? Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams means to a copy tail and just pull the head of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Jack and Sandra Jesse had been married for 14 years when he was diagnosed with bowel cancer in 1998. His siblings and daughters rallied around him and were determined to help him in his fight for life. Unbeknownst to them, it wasn't just the cancer that was out to get Jack Jesse. In fact, there was a whole conspiracy in the works to end his life. And like so many others before it, this one was motivated by pure, unadulterated greed. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous, witty and incredible patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our Rough as Silk and Smooth as Guts first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes where we open a huge can of worms and then eat them alphabetically. Yum! Yum! Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. 
Now, unfortunately, the mail isn't being delivered very promptly at the moment for reasons. Uh, A patron of ours in Germany, the lovely Dobby, only just received her stickers and badges and it was five months and 10 days after we sent that out. So apologies to everyone for the wait. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. August 13th, 1998 was a hot night in Placentia, California. 56-year-old Jack Jesse and his 47-year-old wife Sandra had been watching game shows on TV. Jack wasn't able to do much as he was still recovering from surgery he'd had for colon cancer. Deciding it was too hot to cook, Sandra went out at 8pm to run some errands and pick up dinner from Burger King on the way home. Jack asked her to bring him back chicken nuggets with fries and a milkshake. What flavour? Strawberry. For reals? Yes. Oh dear. Oh dear indeed. Sandra should only have been gone for around half an hour, but after an hour with no sign of her, Jack began to worry something had happened. By the time an hour and 20 minutes had passed, he began to panic, fearing his wife of 14 years had been involved in an accident. He was too weak after surgery to go to the nearby mall to look for Sandra himself, so he called his daughter Cheryl Deander. Cheryl had been getting ready to go to bed when her father contacted her. She drove the two minutes to his place and figured by the time she got there, her stepmother would have returned home. Jack, dressed only in a pair of shorts, or possibly jorts, came out to meet Cheryl in the driveway and asked her to drive to the mall to look for Sandra. Quite sure nothing was wrong, but seeing the worry in her father's eyes, Cheryl complied. Now, you know what? You actually have quite a few things in common with Jack Jesse, Barney. Really? Like what? Well, for starters, he had a sweet beard and you sometimes have a sweet beard. I have one now. Want to touch it? We're recording in separate suburbs again due to lockdown restrictions in Melbourne. I couldn't touch it if I wanted to. Also, I don't want to. I think you do. I don't. I do not. Am I touching it with my eyes over the fucking Skype? You are. You're looking at it right now. Ooh, I'm going to touch the screen. Oh, it feels like a computer screen, dickhead. You're touching, you're undressing my face with your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I am, and it's about as enjoyable as it sounds. So what else do we have in common? Well, he was born on May 12th, just like you. Ah, a very auspicious date indeed. That's also Homer Simpson's birthday. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jack was born in 1940, though, and you were born a couple of years later. Excuse me? I mean, a few decades later. That's better. And in some home videos played in a Dateline episode about this case, I'm pretty sure Jack was wearing jorts. Now, I can't be sure because it was quite a blurry picture. Oh, they were jorts, all right. I'm his birthday twin. I know these things. In fact, George for Jack Jesse, that's the name of my fourth album. An article in OCWeekly.com described Jack as a stocky, ruggedly handsome man with an endearing smile. Well, that's me too, so like, it's like the similarities never end. Oh, they do. The article went on to say that he was a fun-loving sports enthusiast and Fritos junkie who didn't have his first cavity until his 50s. He liked classic cars and he cheered the Raiders when they were in LA and was a diehard Dodgers fan. Jack enjoyed family pool gatherings, tequila, blackjack in Las Vegas, Chardonnay with dinner and bowling on Tuesday nights. He sounds like a lot of fun. He was. Jack's brother David, Jesse, said he was the nicest guy in the world and I'm not just saying that because he was my brother. 
When Jack met Sandra in 1982, he was in his late 30s, feeling trapped in an unhappy marriage to a woman he'd been with for over 20 years but trying to stick it out for his two teenage daughters. He and Sandra began a workplace affair, saucy, not long after meeting. Sandra, meet me in the copy room at 3pm with the Penske file. Oh, I'll bring the Penske file, all right. I've stored it somewhere extra special for you. Hey, Penske. Come and get it. Sandra Gushy was born in 1950 and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Her father was a policeman and it seems she might have learnt a thing or two about the law from him. She moved to California in her late 20s. When she met Jack, she was a single mother to two children and was struggling financially. She worked at a modestly paid job in admin at Fujitsu where she met engineering manager Jack. His job certainly paid well. He started out at the bottom and worked his way to an executive position and, as we mentioned earlier, he had a sweet beard. Oh, yeah. According to OCWeekly.com, Sandra was a pot smoker who was fond of chocolate licorice, almond joys, over-the-counter diet pills, sex toys and porno. So Sandra's a lot like you, Tara. I only use sex toys made out of diet pills, but otherwise we're twins. Sandra had left Fujitsu after declaring she had carpal tunnel syndrome and had made a compensation claim against them. Jack was still working there but was on leave due to his illness. Jack's ex-wife and queen of subtle shade, Mary Hinman, thought Sandra had missed her calling. Mary told the TV show Snapped, I always felt she should have dealt in some kind of sales because she did a real good sales job on him. Jack and Mary divorced in 1984 and he married Sandra just months later. It would be her third marriage and his second. Jack may have loved Sandra to bits, but his family didn't feel the same way. His daughters considered her to be a cold, calculating person who put on a bubbly, warm and friendly act in public. They thought she was faker than fakey McFakeface in Fake Town. Nah, that's fake news. <laughs> Fortunately, they were both over 18 by this point and didn't have to live with her. Sandra's kids were in their early teens and Jack helped raise them. He and her son, Tom, bonded over a mutual love of football. Sandra and Tom's dad had gotten divorced when Tom was a baby, so Jack became the father he never had. On the night of August 13, 1998, Jack's daughter Cheryl had driven to the nearby mall looking for his missing wife Sandra, but her mission was unsuccessful. When she got back to her dad's place 15 minutes later, Cheryl discovered her lifeless father on the landroom floor in a pool of blood and called 911. At first she assumed he'd had a fall and hit his head due to his weakened state. Cheryl attempted to give him CPR. She later told the jury, I rolled him over. He had gashes in his chest. I breathed into him and every time I did, I could hear air going through the holes. That's when she realised he had suffered several stab wounds. Cheryl added, They say I'm lucky to be alive. They think the guy was still there when I came back. The paramedics arrived to find a bloody crime scene. Jack had fought back as best he could, but in his weakened state, he was overpowered by the intruder who stabbed him several times in the back, neck, shoulder and head. After the paramedics arrived, Sandra pulled up behind them. Seeing Cheryl, she asked what she was doing there. After Cheryl explained, she came come over at the behest of her father because he was worried about Sandra being gone so long. Sandra dismissed her and claimed to have only been gone for five minutes. <gasps> 
Cher was alarmed by her stepmother's reaction to Jack's stabbing, saying, Her emotional state was really strange. If it would have been me, and that was my husband lying on the ground, I would have been trying to run in there. But she didn't try that at all. Jack was rushed to the hospital, but was pronounced dead in the ambulance on the way. Jack's siblings and daughters were devastated to lose him, especially in such a violent way. But they decided very quickly that they wouldn't let their sadness and loss prevent them from campaigning to get his killer or killers brought to justice. And they had some strong feelings about who was responsible. When Jack's brother David found out about the murder, he thought straight away that Sandra was involved and said, that bitch did it. Jack's siblings and children had never warmed to Sandra, but they'd bitten their tongues and tolerated her out of respect for Jack. Jack's sister Beverly told the Orange County Register, he got married to his first wife at 19. They were married 25 years and then had problems. Sandy glommed onto that. I don't think they had a great marriage. She acted strange a lot. Jack's daughter Cheryl said that Sandra had never made an effort to get to know Jack's family. She said, at family gatherings, when we were all sitting together, having fun and talking, she'd be sitting alone in a corner, reading a book. What kind of book? Matricide for dummies. Jack's family had a lot of reasons to suspect Sandra, as she and Jack had been arguing a lot recently, mostly about money and her desire to move to Arizona. Sandra's kids had grown up and moved out of home. Even her favourite, her son Tom, who seemed like he might be tied to her apron strings forever, had up and moved to Arizona. Jack's daughters described their relationship as being creepy close. Sandra was desperate to follow Tom to Arizona and tie him back to her apron strings. My apron looks naked without my adult son attached to it. (laughs) Tom had earned an associate's degree in criminal justice and aspired to be a police officer like his grandfather. But by the age of 28, the closest he'd come to achieving his goals was to work security at a local Target store. That's not real close. No, no, it's, it's not close at all. I was being a little facetious. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I spray it on under my arms in the morning and it keeps me fresh all day. Is it the ball type? No, it's for under your arms. <laughs> Mama's boy Tom had finally taken the plunge and married his high school girlfriend, Marla. But not only did he move out of home, he and his new wife had moved all the way to Arizona to be closer to her parents. This did not please Sandra. She felt abandoned and asked herself, what am I, chopped liver? Chopped liver immediately clapped back and said, leave me out of your creepy eatable complex bullshit, Sandra. Wow, chopped liver said that? Sure did. Chopped liver will not tolerate your bullshit. Sandra couldn't stand the thought of being away from her 28-year-old baby boy, Tom Tom. She tried to get Jack to retire so they could follow him to Arizona, but Jack didn't want to move. His daughters lived in California and he was very close to them. Sandra and Jack fought so frequently about moving that he was starting to think that divorce might be the only option. His sister Beverly told Snapped that he talked about leaving Sandra, but he was very adverse to being alone. In the spring of 1998, Jack was diagnosed with colon cancer. Since it was in the early stages, his prognosis was good. On April 5th, he underwent surgery to have part of his colon removed and was expected to make a full recovery. He was doing great for a while, even returning to work for a few weeks before falling ill again. Doctors discovered he had developed an infection from the surgery and needed to have an emergency operation to deal with it. 
At the hospital, while Jack underwent his second surgery, rather than planning for the worst and hoping for the best, Sandra was throwing negativity around like confetti. When Jack's daughters Cheryl and Cherie arrived at the hospital, Sandra made sure to fill their heads with doom and gloom about their father being at death's door. She told them she didn't think he'd live to see the next day, but Sandra was as much of a doctor as Dr Pepper. Oh no, less so. And the real doctors informed Jack's family that the surgery had gone well. Jack's second surgery meant he would need to use a colostomy bag temporarily. When a nurse tried to show Sandra how to help her husband with the colostomy bag, she refused to listen and had a tantrum about how disgusting it was. Despite Sandra's disastrous predictions, Jack was able to return home in August. Doctors thought his prognosis was good and considered what happened no more than a setback. Jack's family were keen to spend time with him as he recovered, but Sandra acted as a gatekeeper and refused to let them visit or talk with him on the phone, telling them he needed to rest. Jack's sister Beverly said, I'd have to pull teeth to get her to let me talk to my brother. Despite doctors saying he was recovering well, Sandra continued to tell his family her dire predictions about his impending death. Despite his illness, Jack kept his sense of humour, joking to his brother David that he felt so weak someone could beat him up with a wet noodle. On the night of Jack's murder, at the request of the lead investigator on the case, Detective Wyatt, Cheryl and Sandra agreed to go to the station to talk to police. Footage of the interview shows Sandra to be quite perky and talkative. When asked if she knew of anyone who would want Jack dead, she said that she couldn't think of a single person. According to OC Weekly, Sandra's police interview lasted four hours. During this time, she told investigators about her movements that night, saying she and Jack watched Jeopardy and then Wheel of Fortune. Then at around 8pm, she'd driven to a nearby mall to deposit a cheque, picked up some prescriptions, bought a bag of ice for his fever and got Jack Burger King and a new pair of shorts. I think it's safe to assume that were jorts. Yeah, okay, a new pair of jorts. She told investigators, He was sitting in his recliner. I told him he'd be back in an hour. The last thing he said to me was he wanted sweet and sour sauce for his nuggets. Sandra went on to say, Jack had gotten really needy and clingy. Changing the colostomy bag was disgusting. But I'm his wife. He was a good man. But he was a lot more vain than I was. He was always primping before he went out, kind of like a woman would. I've been exhausted from taking care of him. I didn't enjoy it. The thing Sandra was saying flummoxed Detective Wyatt. He told OCWeekly.com, Her husband's just been murdered and she's complaining about him. I began to feel like she was trying to control the interview by stalling my questions. When asked how long she'd been out that night for, Sandra said it was 45 minutes to an hour and went on to say, unprompted, I'm not the easiest person to live with. We had our arguments and fights. But I'm going to tell you something. Our lovemaking was good. We had a good sex life. Hey, baby. Uh, we'll bear it down the stairs. Uh, what did Detective White think of that? He thought it was hot, of course. No, no, he didn't. No, he, uh, he, he really didn't. I'm not finding it hot. It wasn't hot. Nobody thought it was hot. 
The timestamps on the receipts from her shopping trip ruled Sandra out as Jack's killer, but they raised other questions. First of all, she'd been gone for nearly two hours, not the 45 minutes to an hour that she claimed. Or the five minutes she told Jack's daughter Cheryl she'd been gone for. Also, the order of how she run her errands raised several eyebrows. You'd expect her to have picked up the prescriptions and done the shopping before buying Jack's dinner at Burger King, so it'd still be hot when she gave it to him. Well, yeah, of course. Nope. She went to Burger King first and drove around with the food in her car for over one and a half hours. I think after one and a half hours in a car, Burger King turns back into rats, doesn't it? Yeah, after an hour and a quarter, actually. Oh, so it was just a bag of rats by the time she got home. <laughs> a bag of rats, and they weren't happy to be there. <laughs> she better have got the sweet and sour sauce, because I'm not eating a bag of rats without it. Sandra had also bought a bag of ice just afterwards. It was a hot August night, much like that Neil Diamond song, so it, this made no sense. Or it made all the sense, Tara, depending on how you looked at it. Ooh. Though Sandra was no Mensa think tank, she was the daughter of a cop and she was cluey about the law. If she was deliberately staying out of the house while her husband was murdered and collecting receipts for an alibi, the order of her purchases made perfect sense. Sandra got defensive while being questioned by police and vociferously denied she killed her husband. Although the detectives did not ask her if she had. Then she lawyered up. Although she claimed to want to help the police as best she could, Sandra refused to provide elimination fingerprints for the CSI team and wouldn't answer Detective White's phone calls. Tom also blocked cops from entering the crime scene in search of additional clues. White explained to the media, I told Tom, I'm trying to find your stepfather's killer and you won't let me in the house? I remember thinking, hmm. And that hmm turned into a hmm when detectives <laughs> found a note next to Sandra's landline phone that said, be careful, someone might be listening. Tom had similar notes next to the phone at his place. When Detective White tried to ask Sandra's brother some questions a few days after Jack's murder, not only did he refuse to answer them, but he also flipped the fuck you finger at the bemused detective. Wow, giving the rude finger to a cop investigating a family member's murder is a new one. Like, I've read all kinds of shit in researching this show, but I have never heard of that happening before. Jack's family were talking, though. His daughter Cherie told police that after a fight with Sandra, he'd told her, I wouldn't be surprised if that bitch kills me. It sounds like by this point, that bitch was his pet nickname for her. Yeah. Jack's brother David told them, right before he was murdered, he looked me straight in the eye and said, if anything ever happens to me, it's her. For her part, grieving widow Sandra went on several shopping sprees, spent a lot of time smoking pot and going to casinos to play the pokies. Well, Tara, everyone grieves in different ways. Yeah, that's true. Smoking pot is the sixth stage of grief, or as I call it, most every day. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to uncover any physical evidence, such as DNA or fingerprints at the crime scene. They studied Sandra's bank accounts and phone records, but were stumped trying to figure out the link between her and the murderer, or who the murderer even was. To the sadness and frustration of Jack Jesse's family, like a witch's tit, the case grew cold. Six months after Jack was murdered, Sandra sold their house in California and bought a new house in, drumroll, guess where? Dorchester? 
No, Arizona, fool. Practically in her son's backyard. Seriously, it was like less than a minute's walk from her place to his. Wow, I wonder how Tom's wife felt about that. Oh, probably pretty crap. She was probably really thrilled to escape from Sandra, but now that had been ruined. After collecting on Jack's life insurance, his superannuation and the sale of the house, Sandra pocketed the equivalent of over $1.3 million from his murder. Whoa. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was a big payday. As well as buying herself whatever the fuck she wanted, she also gave her favourite child, Tom, $50,000, bought him a truck, a boat, tools and a house with a pool. I'm surprised she didn't ask him to crawl back up her. I'll crawl back up your mother, Tom. Yeah, he might have done it. It sounds like she's paying him off. Yeah, it certainly does. Like, especially since Jack's daughters, Cheryl and Cherie, didn't receive a cent. We'll be back with the conclusion of Deadlier Than Cancer after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yo, Barney Bag, what time is it? I don't answer to that name. <laughs> <laughs> it's True Crime Nerd Time. Whee! True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel. Tara bag, song, <laughs> or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from our unpaid staff writer, Tracy Stewart. Hey! Hey, Tracy. And she tells us about the crime fiction book Lockdown by Laurie R. King. Oh, Lockdown? Yeah. Isn't that what we're living in? Uh, yeah. It's also the name of uh, a Transformer. <laughs> Isn't it called Transformer? <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool one. It's a um, Decepticon. Oh, they're the bad guys, aren't they? They're the bad guys. Anyway, Tracy writes, In my eyes, Laurie R. King can do no wrong. She has been on my indispensables list for over two decades, and she is absolutely one of those writers whom I will follow anywhere. I doubt I would normally read a book about a school shooting. There are still two fresh scars in this neck of the woods for me to choose such a subject for entertainment. That's so in a lot of necks of a lot of woods. Here, it's because of Sandy Hook and 20 tiny dead children. All the different strands of this story, the students, the parents, the teachers, the custodian, the killer among them, weave a stressfully tense story. The humour and normalcy of the early events are deeply overshadowed by what you know is coming and the fear of how bad it's going to be. Who among the characters you come to like to care about will still be standing at the end? How deep will the scars be? One of the hallmarks of a good murder mystery is that no stone is left unturned and no secret is left unexposed. This is a sort of inverted murder mystery and it comes to the same thing. 
Checkered past, private opinions, other lives, none of that is likely to survive the storm that is about to roll over this town. Scars? No one is getting out of this story without one. The blurb talks about the plot ripped from the headlines. I hate that. I do. I had to stop watching Law and Order long ago because it made me queasy to see real people's pain being used for yet another mediocre drama. But with Laurier King, there's a big difference between a thinly veiled fictionalisation of something that has just happened, where the people involved are probably still in pain, and this. A tale that is in a way a composite of true horrors without trying to cash in on any specific real grief. It's all the grief and anger and horror of all those senseless days. I sincerely hope LRK continues to use her power for good. I trust her enough that, well, I read this. I don't think she'll ever lead me to a place I'll regret. Love, Tracy Stewart. Well, thanks, Tracy. That book is Locked Down by Laurie R. King, the details of which will be in the show notes. Sounds pretty interesting, actually. Mm. Yeah, indeed. If you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Is it still 2020? It sure is, Tara. But it feels like it's been years. Decades, even. Centuries. Eons. (sighs) Is everything going on in the world at the moment, and the way this year is panning out, interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had about as much as you can take and you're not sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to sit in a germy, uncomfortable waiting room or, well, even leave your house for that matter. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as LGBTQI matters, grief, self-esteem, relationships and sleeping problems. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, you can check out the tons of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Deadlier Than Cancer. In 2001, three years after Jack Jesse's murder, the Placentia Police Department received an anonymous tip. The caller said that someone had confessed to him that they had been involved in Jack's murder. The tipster went on to say that Sandra and her son Tom were also involved. He said he knew the names of the killers and the getaway driver, but refused to say who they were. Damn you, anonymous tipster! 
What he would say about them is that they had worked with Tom at a department store and played on a softball team together. The getaway driver had been paid a lot of money by Sandra and bought himself a brand new pickup truck and a Skidoo brand jet ski with his ill-gotten gains. While looking for new cases to cover, I have stumbled upon so many people who committed murders and bought a jet ski with the profits. Really? How many? Over a dozen. Like enough to start a whole other podcast called Jet Ski Murder. Police looked into the tip at the time but didn't come up with anything. Jack's brother David, who investigators fondly described as like a bulldog on a bone, campaigned hard to get his brother's murder solved. David said, I called the mayor, I called the police chief, and I I told them when the case was moved to Orange County Sheriff's Department. According to Snapped in 2005, seven years after the murder, the case was moved to the OC Sheriff's Department cold case unit after campaigning by Jack's family. It landed with a thud on the desk of investigator Tom Dove. He and his team went back to the anonymous tip and investigated it more thoroughly. They found Mama's boy Tom had worked for Target in the mid-90s. Remember? As a security guard. That's it. As there were hundreds of other employees at the Target he worked for at the time, it wasn't simple to figure out who his accomplices might have been. The cold case unit also looked into the small amount of evidence they had. One thing that caught their attention was a scrap of paper which had been found in Sandra's purse during the police interview after the murder. The name on the torn scrap of paper was Schraben. Schraben? Yes, Schraben. Detective Dove compared the target staff lift to Sandra's phone records and found she'd called a guy named Brett Schraben a couple of months before Jack was murdered. Brett still lived in Orange County and still worked at Target. Detective Dove did a drive-by of his house and saw a 1989 pickup truck and a Skidoo brand jet ski out the front, which is what the anonymous tipster had said the getaway driver had bought. Detective Dove thought to himself, bingo, Brett's involved. According to OC Weekly, in the summer of 1998, Brett Schraubin was a cocky 25-year-old wannabe hitman who walked like a penguin. He considered himself a ladies' man, but actually spent more time playing video games than getting his freak on with the ladies. He tried to make a career for himself as a pimp, but failed miserably. Hat not fluffy enough? Apparently not. He told Porky Pies about robbing ATMs and claimed to be able to import a kilo of cocaine, but never did. I bet he called them ATM machines. Yeah, ATM machines. Oh, don't even get me started. He wanted a new truck, a jet ski, a trip to Nevada and breast enlargement surgery for his girlfriend, but his target salary just wasn't cutting it. It never does. And by the way, we all want those things. Yeah, we do all want those things. Brett and Mama's boy Tom were best mates and referred to each other as brothers. Brett actually knew Jack Jesse personally as Tom had invited him over to the house for barbecues and to swim in the pool. Brett and Tom were also very close with another Target employee named TJ Garrick. What do you think the TJ stands for? Tiny Junk. Toe Jam. Ah, we're both right. They played on the same softball team and hung out a lot together. According to Snapped, investigators decided to start taking jet ski Brett's rubbish from his bin and going through it in the hopes of finding something incriminating. Wow, seven years after Jack's murder? That's a bit unlikely. It was unlikely, but that doesn't mean it didn't work. After a few months of doing this, he threw out a day planner for the years 1996, 97 and 98 in his garbage. This was very important for the police as Jack was murdered in 1998. 
Detectives could now see who jet ski Brett was meeting up with around that time and look closer at the people mentioned. Investigators got a warrant to tap Sandra and her son Tom's phone and devised a cunning plan. I know I love this, Tara. I love it. Oh yeah, it's very cool. In September 2005, they posted newspaper clippings about Jack's murder to Sandra, Tom and Brett. Then they sat back and waited for them to call each other. <laughs> While listening to a call between Tom and Sandra, Tom told her that Brett got the clippings sent to him too. Sandra asked him why they would send them to Brett and wondered aloud how they would know he was involved. That is very damning. Oh, there's more. There's more? That's not the end of the story? How no? Investigating names in Brett's day planner, they managed to track down the man who had left the anonymous tip. He turned out to be the boyfriend of the sister of Brett's then-girlfriend. The woman who wanted breast implants? Yes. Did she end up getting them? Them? No, just one. One big fake boob, one little real boob. That reminds me of a joke. No time for that now, Tara. (sighs) When police knocked on his door, that man, who according to OCWeekly.com, was named Mike Kavlovic, who told investigators he knew they'd find him one day. He recounted a story about being in a bar with jet ski Brett Schrobin shortly after the murder and hearing him admit his involvement in it. He also told them the name of the other person involved, Brett and Tom's friend TJ Garrick. Tiny junk. Toe Jam Garrick. TJ had apparently used his share of the blood money to get his teeth fixed as they were black from smoking a ton of meth. Oh, meth. Is there nothing it can't ruin? Figuring it was unlikely they could turn Mama's boy Tom, and with TJ Garrick being in the Navy on a ship in Japan at the time, the police focused on cracking the case by leaning on jet ski Brett. According to Snapped, on September 20th, 2005, they arrested Brett for Jack Jesse's murder. Brett turned out to be a tougher nut than they were expecting and did not crack immediately as they'd hoped. He spent 500 days in jail before he contacted the DA's office in 2007, hoping to make a deal. Then he didn't hold back, telling them all about Sandra, Tom and TJ's involvement and what he was paid and revealing the details of the murder plot. Brett said he agreed to kill Jack for $50,000. He said he met Sandra in a parking lot in June 1998. She gave him an envelope containing a down payment of $5,000 cash, a picture of Jack and a hand-drawn diagram of their house and asked him, how soon can you kill him? Didn't Brett already know what Jack looked like? Yes, but I guess she included it for him to show to any accomplices. Brett said she told him she'd pay him another $45,000 after the murder. He'd organised to pay $10,000 of the money to TJ to be his getaway driver and fix his black meth teeth. The hit was supposed to go down on the afternoon of August 13th while Sandra was out getting a manicure. She had left the garage door unlocked so Brett could enter the house. Brett had gone to Jack's place with the intention of killing him. He entered the garage through the unlocked door with a big Rambo knife in his hand and then got cold feet. Should have worn socks. Oh, dad joke. He came back outside, locking the garage door after him. On the way back to the car, he called Mama's boy Tom and said that he couldn't go through with the plan as Sandra hadn't left the door unlocked for him. Brett said he tried to call off the deal entirely, but apparently his mate TJ had dollar signs in his eyes and said that they had to do it. He even volunteered to kill Jack himself and let Brett drive the getaway car instead. 
So that's the story according to Jet Ski Brett. But we should point out there was nobody else around at the time apart from Brett and TJ, so we only have his word for it. They worked out a new plan with Tom for Sandra to go out again that night on her Jorton Burger King errands and they'd come back and kill Jack then. According to Jet Ski Brett, on the night of the murder, TJ crept into Jack's house while Sandra was out on her suspicious errand running mission. Finding him alone, TJ attacked Jack with the Rambo knife and stabbed him several times. The OC Weekly reported that he used a walkie-talkie to tell getaway driver Brett that the foul deed was done before washing his hands in a bathroom sink and leaving. He was supposed to ransack the place and steal a valuable coin collection to make it look like a robbery gone wrong, but he didn't. What, did he run out of time? Nah, he just forgot. Math. Math. After Jack's murder, Jet Ski Brett was paid the rest of the 45000 Sandra owed him in three instalments. He'd fly to Arizona, be given an envelope with $15,000 in cash in it by Tom at the airport, then he'd buy a $20 stale ham sandwich, then fly back to California. He did this three times, which was confirmed by the airline. And the stale ham sandwich vendor. On May 25, 2007, 58-year-old Sandra and her 39-year-old son Tom were arrested in Arizona and charged with murder for financial gain and conspiracy. They were extradited back to California for trial. Sandra and Tom's trial began on June 22, 2009. It was a joint trial and Sandra was disappointed to learn it wasn't the kind of joint she could smoke. Ah, oh, bummer. They both pleaded not guilty and Jack's family were front and centre in court, desperate to see justice served after 11 years. Jet Ski Brett had struck a deal with the DA that he would testify against his co-conspirators in court in exchange for pleading guilty to one count of voluntary manslaughter. Although he had been consistent with his version of events, in court the defence painted Brett as a bullshit artist who was telling lies so he could get a sweetheart deal to get out of prison sooner. The prosecution claimed Sandra was a mastermind of the plot and did so so she could get her filthy mitts on Jack Jesse's money and not have it be eaten away by paying for his cancer treatment. His murder also meant she was free to move to Arizona to tie her diabolical apron strings back around her devious son Tom. According to the Orange County Register, after the trial, the jurors deliberated for over two days, then sent Superior Court Judge Glenda Sanders a note saying they were at a deadlock. The judge ordered them to keep at it, but the jurors came back later that afternoon to say they were unable to make any progress. The holdout juror was an unemployed woman who lived alone and did not believe the testimony of Brett Schrauben. This woman had recently watched the Henry Fonda movie adaptation of the play Twelve Angry Men and was living her own Hollywood courtroom fantasy. The plot of 12 Angry Men, in a nutshell, is about the deliberations of the jury of a murder trial where a dozen men decide the fate of a teenager accused of murdering his abusive father. At first, 11 of the men decide that the teenager is guilty, with a single dissenter voting not guilty. Throughout the film, this juror sows a seed of reasonable doubt and eventually wins over the other jurors for a unanimous not guilty verdict. Unlike the dissenting juror in 12 Angry Men, this woman was unable to sow seeds of reasonable doubt or win over any other jurors to her way of thinking. She told the Orange County Register, I was trying to figure out how to look at everything. Did they do it? Oh, look, it's hard for me to say. I can't say they absolutely did it. 
The woman's refusal to budge saw tons of tears and outbursts by her frustrated fellow jurors during deliberations. It was quite an emotional scene. Oh, for fuck's sake. Unable to reach a unanimous vote, the judge declared a mistrial. After hearing this, Sandra Jessie smiled like someone had just offered her a deep-fried joint, a framed heart-shaped picture of Tom and a lift to the casino. Many of the jurors approached prosecutor Michael Murray after the mistrial and told him that they thought he'd done a great job proving that Sandra and her crotch-fruit Tom had organised Jack Jessie's murder. One juror told him, You've worked so hard and we're so sorry. We all know they're guilty. Murray was passionate in his determination to ensure justice would be served. He told Jack's family, we'll do this again and again and again if necessary. I'm going to do this until I get it right. Juror Jill Brower told the Orange County Register about the holdout juror saying, she didn't think in a linear fashion. She would just think in circles. Jill then hugged one of Jack's daughters, Cherie Williams, and told her how sorry she was about the mistrial as tears streamed down her cheeks. Cherie said, I waited a long time for this trial. I thought it was in the bag, but our family will be here next time. The release of Sandra and Tom caused Jack's sister, 61-year-old Beverly Crane, to have a breakdown. She said it was devastating after all those years. When there weren't any arrests for so many years, you get to the point that you think the case will never be solved. But Jack's family and prosecutor Michael Murray were adamant this would not be the case. For the new trial, Mama's boy Tom decided to have a separate defence to Sandra. In a move that surprised even the most hardened and cynical detectives, Tom decided to save himself and turn on his mama. Yeah, no one saw that coming. On November 7, 2011, nearly 13 years after Jack's murder, Sandra went on trial again. A month before this, Tom approached the prosecution seeking a deal. He said if he could plead guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder, he'd testify against any of his co-conspirators at future trials. Tom took the stand at Sandra's trial and said she was a mastermind who plotted the murder. Jetski Brett also testified against her as he had done before. Believing she could convince a jury of her innocence, Sandra insisted on taking the stand. The defence painted her as a doting grandmother who would do anything for her sick husband. Sandra played up the grieving widow act for the jury, saying she too died the day Jack was murdered. On her second day on the stand, Prosecutor Murray brought out the heavy shit. Quite literally. He asked her what her reaction had been when she learned that Jack's second colon surgery would require him to use a colostomy bag temporarily. Sandra spent the next five minutes pretending that she didn't understand the question, so he rephrased it and asked her, didn't you cover your ears, run to the corner of the hospital room and say you weren't going to help your husband? Sandra said she certainly did not do that. That's when Murray produced a written record by the nurse who tried to show her how to use the colostomy bag. The nurse had detailed Sandra's repulsed reaction to learning that she would have to help her husband empty the bag, the tarot bag. Barney bag. Murray asked her, didn't you angrily refuse to help Jack? Sandra replied, I don't remember that happening. That whole time is very vague. Murray pressed her to clarify whether she didn't remember it happening or if it didn't happen. Upon further pressure to answer, Sandra said the nurse had fabricated her records and it didn't happen. And just like that, Sandra had lost all their credibility. 
Not that she had a lot to begin with. Nobody in the court believed the word of Sandra, who had all the vested interest in the world over the word of a nurse who had no ulterior motive. On December 7th, 2011, the jury took less than four hours to reach their verdict. They found Sandra Jesse guilty on all counts. Prosecutor Mike Murray was quoted in the Huffington Post as saying of Sandra, she's just one of the most twisted defendants I've come across who would engage her own biological son in the murder of a man she's been married to for 15 years at probably the most vulnerable time in his life. To see her finally get justice is very gratifying. Sandra Jessie was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Jack Jessie's family were thrilled with the sentence and hoped Sandra would be forced to think about what she'd done to Jack every day for the rest of her life. After her conviction, prosecutors asked the trial judge to order Sandra to pay restitution to her late husband's estate and other affected parties. The court agreed and ordered her to pay the estate of Jack Jesse pretty much all the money she'd received from his death. Her son Tom was later sentenced to 15 years to life. Jet ski Brett Schrobin got less than two years. TJ Garrett, Toe Jam Garrett, who Brett and Tom allege was Jack's actual killer, was also charged for his murder but was acquitted at trial in 2013 as it was found there was insufficient evidence to convict him. See, they only really had the word of Tom and Brett, unfortunately. Yeah. In a final crazy twist of fate, according to OC Weekly, the pathologist who performed Jack's autopsy estimated that Jack Jesse had as few as two months left to live at the time of his murder. Wow. 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 It was so just no. Yes. There was no point to any of it at all. Not that there ever is. Sandra was hoisted on her own petard of hubris and greed. Yeah, yeah. And neither of them got to live in Arizona. Suck no. It, Sandra. And Tom didn't get to crawl back up his mother. No, he didn't. But he, I guess he gets to be a prison pen pal now. I have but one question. Uh-huh. What is Aussie as? Aussie has are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Thanks to the wonderful Beyond Belief Lorraine Ledwell for bringing this story to my attention. And this one's for all our truck driving listeners. 10-4, rubber ducky or something. <laughs> According to BBC News, in 1998, a 37-year-old truck driver named Bill Morgan was in a massive truck accident and the shock of it caused him to have a heart attack. Morgo was rushed to the hospital and given a drug which he had an extreme allergic reaction to. His heart stopped for a whopping 14 minutes and he slipped into a coma. Doctors thought Morgo wasn't long for this earth and recommended to his family that they switch off his life support. They said, yeah, nah, fuck that. Did they reckon Morgo could still make a comeback? They certainly did and they were right. Twelve days later, Morgo emerged from his coma with all his faculties intact. That's a miracle. Just one of many. Morgo went on to marry his sweetheart and won a car off one of those instant scratch lottery tickets. Go, Morgo. A Melbourne TV station decided to tell Morgo's story. While they were filming a segment on him, they asked Morgo to go back to the store where he bought his winning ticket. So they got him to buy another scratchy ticket and to scratch it off to reenact him winning the car. 
While being filmed scratching another ticket, Morgo was gobsmacked to realise he'd just had an even bigger win. Seriously, he looked shocked beyond belief. Let's have a listen to him discovering that. I just won 250000 I'm not joking. I just won 250000 So $250,000 then is the equivalent of close to $400,000 in today money. How many bollars is that? 12 times infinity. Morgo was living in a caravan at the time of his big win, but he and his new wife dreamed of buying their own house. The TV crew filmed him calling his wife about the big win, and it's possibly the cutest thing ever. I've won 250000 honey. I have. I have. <laughs> we got that new house. <laughs> so, yeah, let's all be like Morgo and not give up. Better things might be coming to you in ridiculous and unexpected ways. This brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time out of their busy lives to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Miss Olivia Ann from the United States. We've got uh, Soffle Little Katie 5, <laughs> I think. And uh, Mercurial from the United States. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team. You know who else is awesome? Who? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our July prize, the Bloody Murder Socks prize pack, was won by Melissa Spears, so congrats. For our August prize, we're giving away a Bloody Murder backpack. The perfect go bag. Fill it with false passports, cash and firearms. Or give it to your high school age semi-goth child and they will be the most popular kid in class. As long as the class is full of other true crime loving kids. For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to... Brandy Lynn Brewer. Robin Mason. Susan Mum. Grant Simpson. Sean Whelan. I hear he's the most popular poet in the whole of Northcote. I hear he's your brother. He is. (laughs) And a special thank you to Tracy Bailey. And Andrew Flutzma. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink. Ah, that's my thirsty voice. Mm-hmm. There's a PayPal donate button there too. And who's buying the drinks this week? It's Sarah Minior. Thanks so much. Thank you. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a Tara bag would still count. <laughs> And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us grow our bosom from the swelling of our once-dead hearts. Don't you mean bosoms? Nah, just the one. Oh, like that joke you told me earlier, yeah. Yeah, and you didn't (laughs) think it was that great, but I thought it was so good I brought it back again. Follow us on our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our Threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. 
you have some little Barney bag story about how you're a Barney bag and you're full of shit and something uh, happened? You had a I dream am not and... a Barney bag. And a Barney bag would not be full of poo. It would be full of lovely things like lollies and beer. Face pubes. Well, yeah, beards are good. Sweet beards. Yeah, you wish you had a beard with your cold face and your, your chin. You can't hide in those chins, can you? A Barney bag full of sweet beards. That's the name of my fourth album. What was that? Someone was calling someone a showbag the other day, and they'd say, Why are you calling me a showbag? Because you're full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that before. That's oh, a new I like one it. for me. Oh, That's like giving the cops the finger when they're investigating the death of one of your relatives. <laughs> yeah, fuck off, copper. Yeah, fuck you, mate. What's that colour of a two cent piece, copper? Well, I was taking some cups of tea upstairs, right? Yeah, for, like you for, do. Like for Mo and, 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 and for my girlfriend for morning tea. And I, and I didn't have anywhere for the biscuits, and so I put them in my pockets. Ooh, Barney temperature biscuits. Yum. And I gave them their, and, and I gave them their cups of tea, and then I said, what's the name of my fourth album? And they went, what? I said, pocket biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, it could be an EP that comes off uh, chocolate pasta. Oh, yeah, yeah, with like the lead single and maybe a couple of other tracks. Yeah, they're all sort of food related. <laughs> Just mostly about food jorts and pornography. Yeah. Drinking. There's some drinking songs, I know that. There's a song called Fish Taco because I didn't <laughs> believe they were real for a while. <laughs> I know, remember when I actually found um, I found a reference in a magazine and I bought the page to show you it was Yeah, I know. I thought it was just a, a name for a tuppence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tuppence. I don't like that unless you're a British drag queen and you're saying it. Yeah. Actually, everything's better when you're a British drag queen. In fact, George for Jack Jesse, that's the name of my fourth album. That one was a surprise hit with the critics. The New York Times called it a compelling listen for all bearded men. They particularly liked the third song off the album, This Is What It Sounds Like When The Jorts Cry. <laughs> I put a lot of work into that one. Well, the kazoo solo alone must have taken a long time to write. You'd think so, Tara, but not really. I just locked myself in the hall closet with a bottle of whiskey, some roofing shingles and a half-set <laughs> bowl of jelly and the magic just happened. I'm sure it did. Oh, I'll bring the Penske file, all right. I've stored it somewhere extra special for you. Hey, Penske. Come and get it. <laughs> okay, what about some other ones? Uh, dinner's ready. Um, <laughs> uh, come tickle my tartars with your man taser. Bloody hell. Hey, baby. Hey, Penske. Hey, Penske. Dinner's ready. Eat up. Nom, 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 nom. Oh, yum. <laughs> oh, I just really like it when the photocopy is on. Oh, that like for butt copies. Mm-hmm. Let's make all of the highlighters watch. He'd started out at the bottom and worked his way to an executive position. Much like I have at Bloody Murder. <laughs> <laughs> really? You have? News to me. Well, I mean, I'm planning to. Okay. Are you going to make a bid to take over from the nobody that's in charge now? Well, yeah, I'm at the bottom. And, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> and so am I. And there's only two of us. Ah, oh, well. <laughs> Didn't think that through, did I? <laughs> oh, mm. Sandra had left Fujitsu after. I really like saying Fujitsu. Do you like saying Fujitsu or are you just being Fujitsu-cetious? <laughs> That's pretty much the best I think we can go now. That's the yeah. pretty much you hit, you've hit the peak of comedy. Oh, excellent. Well, that didn't take long. We've only been recording for 13 minutes. Um, all right, I'm off to, uh, to neck a bottle of rosé in record time. <laughs> you were planning on doing that anyway. Jack may have loved Jack. Jack? Is his name Jack? Jack. You're a Kiwi. Jack in the beanstalk. Jack in the beanstalk. No, that was just business, Tara. Jake in the beanstalk. Jake in the beanstalk. Oh, Dracula. No. <laughs> One, two, three, four. <laughs> I want to suck your blood and use your calculator. Jack may have loved Sandra to bits, but his family didn't feel the same way. His daughters considered her to be a cold, calculating person who put on a bubbly, warm and friendly act in public. Much like yourself, Barney. <laughs> that is not true. Yeah, because there is no public anymore. No. <laughs> We're grounded for life. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've never put on a bubbly, warm and friendly act in public. Yeah, you've probably never put one on in private either. I'm cold. I'm a cold and calculating in private and in public. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like... It's like you're made of stone or, well, at least lots of tiny bits of gravel glued together. That's right, with a beard. A sweet with a beard, beard. With a sweet beard. <laughs> it's like the cherry on top. It really is. They thought she was faker than fakey McFaketown in fake... No. <laughs> Who wrote this shit? Yeah, oh, yeah. I fucking wonder. Oh, I've got to say, Kloss me a bag about 20,000 times. <laughs> Suck it up, colostomy boy. I'm a colostomy man. Sorry. Suck it up, colostomy man. Well, I will be one day. Oh, no. <laughs> Jack's... No. That's too dark even for me. <laughs> Jack's second surgery meant that he would need to use a colostomy bag. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. It, it's the new hammer in the anus. It is. It is. It's quite <laughs> hey, ironic, also, really. Colostomy bag is appropriate to be the new hammer in the anus. It really it's is. All, it's all downstairs. It's all a bit bum, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're growing up, though. It's a medical term, at least. <laughs> well, hammer in the anus was a police term, so I don't know. Jack's sec. All right. Calm face. I can do this. Jack, <laughs> fuck you. I'm sorry. You trying to be calm just made me, like, really entertained. Which was an unfamiliar feeling. <sighs> oh, there's more colostomy bag stuff later, isn't it? And I have to do that as well. <sighs> I know. Isn't it funny how it just turned out that way? Yeah. No, it did just turn out that way. I wouldn't dodge a colostomy bag. I'd be, like, embracing that shit. Yeah, you'd drink wine out of it. Yeah, I'm going to after this. Um, well, I've got to empty it first. Want to help? <laughs> yes, I do. Thanks, Barney. I call it my Barney bag. <laughs> what? I call my colostomy bag my Barney bag. I heard you the first time. You didn't have oh, to say no, it again. I, I, I was saying, saying what, it. like, what? Barney bag, 
Barney bag. It's full of shit and it really sags. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I have missed you. <laughs> Hasn't anyone been being mean to you? <laughs> Is that what you miss? Jack's family were keen to spend time with him as he recovered, but Sandra acted as a gatekeeper and refused to let them visit or talk with him on the phone, telling them he needed to rest. Rest. Oh. Let him rest. Oh, he needs his rest. Stop bothering him. He needs his rest. Oh, but if you do want to come in, you could you empty this bag for me? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to touch it. It's dirty. So I just don't even want to think about it. No, I'm not listening. La, 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 la. Don't tell me about the Barney bag. I'm not listening. La, it's la, not la, a, la, la, la. It's not a Barney bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm choking and I deserve it. <laughs> He was always primping before he went out, kind of like a woman would. I've been exhausted from taking care of him. I didn't enjoy it. Sandra, where's my fancy jorts? I'm going out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need your fancy jorts to go to Burger King, Jack. I do. I want to wear my fancy jorts. <laughs> oh, what's so fancy about your fancy jorts? Do they have like embroidery or something? Maybe they they're monogrammed. Do. They're monogrammed. Monogrammed jorts. And they've been bedazzled. <laughs> bedazzled, more like it. <laughs> I want to eat my nug nugs in some fancy jorts too. Well, you can't. <laughs> oh, all right then. Woo, yum. <laughs> that was a roller coaster ride, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really was. I feel alive now. Woo. Sandra's son, Tom, also block cop. Blocked, blocked, blocked. I know, it's something in my mouth. Is it my double chin? Because I can't stop looking at it. Well, I don't know. I've got one too, but you should grow a beard, man. I can't grow a beard, but I could collect all the dog hair that's on my clothes and stick it to my chin. i got more than enough. Sounds like a great idea. I can't see anything bad about that idea. No, there is nothing bad about that idea, except that it would feel like a whole bunch of glue and dog hair glued to my face, and that's probably unpleasant. Yeah, but see, that'd be bad for you. But for me, it'd be really funny. Yeah, no downside for you, is there? No downside for for Barney. Fair enough. Uh, Put that in your Tara bag. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to put it in my Barney bag and smoke it. A Barney bag don't exist. That's not a thing. Yeah, they do. And they're full of poo. They're Barney bags. Barney bags. And that hmm turned into a hmm when detectives found a note next to Sandra's landline phone that said, be careful, someone might be listening. But see, that's the thing about phones, though. Someone's got to listen for it to work. Uh, right. Did you think she From didn't? both ends. Like, she was used to having a fake phone and now she had a real one and she's like, watch out, someone's yeah. listening. I think yeah. that what that meant was actually like as in not just the person she's talking to but it- the detectives. Oh, I see. Yeah, you see yeah. how I unpacked that for oh. you? Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> that hurts my mouth when I do that. Do it again. No. <laughs> you try and do it. Try and scream, hmm. Hmm. Doesn't make your teeth vibrate? Yeah, but I liked it. My weirdo. Yeah, I'm very strange. I've been very strange for a very long time now. I'm quite used to it. I find it boring. 
That's when Mari produced a written record by the nurse who tried to show her how to use the colostomy bag. Or as we call it here, the Tara bag. I believe that we call it the Barney bag. I believe it's called the Rolls Tara bag. Rolls off the tongue. Tara bag. Barney bag. God, it does sound better though, doesn't it, Barney bag? Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 